This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. So who's been getting vaccinated against COVID-19 with doses intended for long-term care residents? And how widespread is this type of diversion? Fight Back asked that question this week of our Zoomer squad after a whistleblower nurse at Villa Leonardo Gambin Long-Term Care Home in the city of Vaughan says she was ordered to administer vaccine to non-frontline workers and family of board members. The home's owners defend the move, saying the inoculations were part of a last-minute scramble to make sure no doses went to waste after everyone entitled to the vaccine received a shot. We've learned that Villa Leonardo Gambin is far from the only nursing home where this has happened. Doris Grinspun, who is CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, told an upcoming episode of The Zoomer on Vision TV, this practice has been widespread, and she blames the fact that hospitals are in charge of the process. Libby Snymer was joined to discuss by Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and VP here at Zoomer Media. It's very disturbing. It's particularly disturbing that she said that she was told to lie about it in filling out the paperwork. Look, we're not talking about, you know, tens of thousands of doses and, you know, saying gotcha over one or two if they miscalculated how many they had and there was one vial or two vials that was going to be thrown away or expire and they, they needed somebody to vaccinate and might as well do some good instead of harm. We're, this is this is more systemic and it's very disturbing if indeed there are no controls over this kind of thing and they're, and they're covering it up afterwards. So um, one more reason why... Um, we can't really have a lot of confidence in the way they've rolled this out, even when they've had the vaccine. Well, and, and it gets better, Peter, because she also said that when she pointed this out, they told her, hey, we can get a dose for your family, too. Yeah. <laughs> and she, she turned out, she declined. She right? declined. I mean, the the woman, it, you know, her integrity is, is totally beyond reproach. Yeah. Because that's and a pretty it, and, and uh, seems, enticing offer. It seems like her integrity is much better than the uh, that of the uh, executives of the home. And, you know, I, I've heard on Twitter, and, and this is all hearsay, I've heard on social media that, uh, you know, hospital executives are getting it, uh you know, as you say, people who aren't really frontline are getting it. And, and it's raising questions with the, the whole process because it's not like we have millions of extra doses lying around that uh, can go out. You know, we're in a time where we're having no doses shipped to Canada. You know, Moderna's um, cutting back on their delivery. Pfizer has completely cut back. And, uh, you know, every dose is precious. And, and if they're giving it to family members, it, like, it, it's just, it's, it's a scandal. Well, it, exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of seven doses here and and eight doses there. 
And um, it it just seems, you know, they're supposed to have a plan in place for extra doses. I get guess they get these vials. I'm not sure that they have, a, you know, written from everyone. There will be people who don't want uh, the doses, but they're supposed to have a plan for the extra doses. And I'm also wondering, well, gee, you're saying you couldn't. Uh, get to the retirement home or the shelter down the street, but you are able to rouse up the family of a board member in exactly. that hour and a half or whatever it was before the thing expired, Bill. Yeah, uh, there, you know, there are a number of issues here. First of all, uh, we've been hearing this kind of story so often in the last few weeks that uh, it's not hearsay anymore. We do know, we do know it's uh, happening. And then we hear the, the leadership of the vaccine distribution in the province talking about, well, speed trumps right. perfection. Well, that, I, what a horrible thing to say. When we first started talking about the, the vaccine, Ontario created an ethical framework. They have it all listed out. It has six points uh, uh, in it. It talks about uh, minimizing harm and equity equity in distribution without bias or discrimination and, and fairness to ensure people get it in the right, the right people in, in the right time. They're totally ignoring yeah, their, their own, uh, their, their own uh, rules that they set up. And, and, and now we, we find that, that they're not, they're doing very different from many other provinces. One of the things we've learned is that most of the provinces are delivering these vaccines through long-term care homes. That's where they're, that's where they're stored. That's where they've put the, the special equipment to, to house them. Ontario is one of the only few provinces that's doing it through, through hospitals and uh, is making a huge difference be, be, by the way it's being treated. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and VP here at Zoomer Media. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Also on Monday, Premier Doug Ford announced he was lifting the state of emergency and allowing regions of the province to gradually reopen for business. As part of the gradual reopening, areas that move into the gray lockdown zone, which is likely to be the case for Toronto, Peel and York, will be allowed to have non-essential businesses physically open to customers. While this is positive news for small business owners, the main concern is that loosened restrictions could happen too quickly, just as more contagious variants are spreading and children are going back to school. Ahead of the Premier's announcement, Libby was joined by Donna Dewar, co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen here in Liberty Village, Nadine Devereaux-Yaculo, co-owner of Capo Salerno Italian Fashion in Toronto, and Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. I'm hopeful that we're going to have some reopening. I certainly expect a regional uh, approach as happened after the first lockdown. Um, likely going to see uh, areas of higher concentration of cases, uh, Toronto, Peel, York, probably delayed relative to, uh, to others. Uh, we would hope, though... What is significantly different than 
before the lockdown, because make no mistake, uh, while we hate it, while it's a total blunt instrument, it is the lockdown that has brought the numbers um, down. And if they if that comes off, particularly now with these variants, how are we going to control not simply having a third wave? And so, you know, we want to see a doubling down on testing. We want to see rapid testing uh, out there more. We want to see more of an investment on the part of of contact tracing and and for individuals, for all of us to be downloading that COVID alert app. Um, you know, it's on us as well. Uh, reopening is not less vigilant, it's more vigilant. Nadine Devereux, how much has the current uh, rules, how much has that disadvantaged you? And and uh, if you are allowed to open on a limited basis, is, is that going to help you hang in? We've had a tough time. We've been struggling for sure, like most other small businesses out there. Uh, I think that we've been fortunate because, for one, we have a landlord that understands our situation. So um, he's been he's been great with us for that. But moving forward, um, if we're able to to actually open, it will help us. Um, I don't. I can I can say I don't understand. I mean, I do understand. You know why we had to have the lockdown, and everything else. But the way that the whole thing was done, it was just. It wasn't done proper. I mean, one thing is that for us as a small business, we took precautionary measures. We have HEPA filters with UV lights. We have a front and back door to allow for fresh air to flow through, which was one of the biggest concerns that the government had as small businesses. You know, well, we can't control whether or not they have these things. But if we can reopen, it will help us definitely because uh, online sales, it, it's not the same having the experience that you can when we do our custom tailoring and things like that. You can't just buy an item online and feel confident and comfortable with it as you do when you're in our boutique. Donna Dewar, um, there's no plan to reopen restaurants for in-house dining. How are you doing with the takeout thing? Well, Libby, we are, you know, like everybody uh, out there who's operating a small business struggling um, and I think the restaurant uh, environment uh, is is very unique in that you have a situation where people are coming into your space, but at some point they do take their masks off to eat and drink and talk and and, and uh, you know we we try to manage that as best we can. So I feel that the government has blanketed this one size fits all, and I suppose the government. Had, didn't have much choice but to put this blanket across the board on the lockdown. But I do agree uh, wholeheartedly that I think there was some unfairness when it came to the big box stores. I, um, I, I had difficulty getting my head around that. We all want to ensure the safety of our, our staff and our guests. And we're all, you know, we're all making the sacrifices to get through this. And uh, it was perplexing to to see that um, situation carry on. Donna Dewar, co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen here in Liberty Village. Nadine Devereux-Yaculo, co-owner of Capo Salerno Italian Fashion in Toronto. And Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break... 
We Canadians are 50-50 on the promise of a COVID vaccine by the end of September. We will discuss coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. If I were to ask you whether you believe Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's promise that all Canadians will get the COVID-19 vaccine by the end of September, half of you would say yes, the other half no. That was the finding of a new Nanos poll released this past week. It's a commitment the Prime Minister keeps repeating with every bit of bad news about our slow, confused, and interrupted vaccine rollout, making it all the more likely voters will remember if he is unable to keep that promise. Libby Snymer discussed Justin Trudeau's messaging when she was joined on Tuesday by our strategy panel. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Minister of Finance. He's consistent, that's for sure, and um, there have been problems, which are obvious, uh, but I'm being assured by people I speak to that uh, supply is volatile, but it's being corrected, and they're confident that they'll have uh, they'll have their quota as necessary by the quarter. I mean, they've been saying all along that the early stages would be a bit slow, but by you know by the by the by the balance of Q2, they'll be at, at uh, where they need to be. So they'll ramp up sharply in April. Question is, are we comfortable with that? Given you know the anxiety that people are feeling with regards to the vaccine and the ability for us to have it uh, you know inoculated to the individuals that need it, but he hasn't changes tune and he's you know it's obvious that we're all concerned about supply shortages and, and the work that's being done uh, that's not being done I guess at this point John again is is he taking a risk I mean according to the calculation from the economist we would have to administer hundreds of thousands of doses a day to meet that September target so is he just putting a, a target on his head if we don't meet it well, I think this whole vaccine rollout and how it's going to be perceived as a huge target on his head and, and whether or not we're going to go into an election, um, you know, after the budget or not, sort of within the next couple of months, or if it's going to be prolonged beyond that into the fall. Uh, and I think it, it started off, you know, the prime minister had a very bad um, messaging from the very outset when it came to vaccines. And we saw that, you know, early on and sort of in December when we started focusing on, on vaccines uh, in that, you know, we had a bunch of ministers, you know, talking and not sure which states they were going to talk, you know, which states were going to happen with respect to vaccines and, and injections and rollouts. And then, you know, he came up with an announcement saying that we're going to get vaccines and we're all going to get, you know, you know, this is all going to, people are going to get vaccinated as soon as we can in 2021. Well, what happened was people's anxiety uh, it was the hope for, for vaccines in 2021 was so great and the expectations were so high that obviously if you didn't meet them as we didn't, then obviously people are going to be disappointed. So I'm not surprised to see the poll. In fact, I would have thought maybe, you know, higher number of people don't believe this government because I think they're, they're getting tired of words and they want to see action. 
And no matter what the prime minister says and all of this confusion with respect to the Pfizer, the various brands of, of, of vaccines and how they're supposed to be sort of managed and stored and all that is confusing for a lot of folks because all they think about is, OK, are the healthcare workers and are the long term care residents being vaccinated first and foremost? I think everybody wants that to happen. And when they're not seeing that and we're seeing the prime minister blaming the provinces initially. Uh, and then the province is basically saying, well, we, we don't have any more, we, we don't have any more vaccines back to you now, prime minister. Then it gets confusing. So it, it, it is, I think people are now sort of tired of the words. They want to see action. And I'm, I'm hopeful and, and looking forward to all of us are that, that, you know, the new shipment of Pfizer vaccines and Moderna and others uh, are going to come back and we can get back into uh, putting jabs in arms, which is what everybody wants. Karen, is he putting himself in uh, more political jeopardy? The public is not going to believe that they're going to receive their, their job by September unless there's a, a, a clearly articulated plan. And I get that the provinces and the federal government need to work together. But, you know, as here I am as a, you know, as a citizen waiting for my shot, I don't have any idea when I'm even eligible to get it. I don't know where I am on the list. I don't know how I'm going to get it. I don't know where I'm going to get it. Do I go to my doctor? Do I go to the pharmacist? Do I go to the convention center? And so part of restoring the public trust is actually being able to articulate, okay, here's, here's who's first, you know, everyone over 65, once they get inoculated, then we're going to go to the, you know, 20 to 40s, because that's the group that is, you know, working in the front line or, or however they are going to. So even when they said, we're going to vaccinate everyone in long-term care, it took too long. And then, yes. you know, then Sally still from, not you know, finished. HR in the hospital got the shot because they didn't have enough people showing up to get there at their appointment. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Kefobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Minister of Finance. Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. He is the most notorious drunk driver in the country. And on Tuesday, Marco Muzzo was granted full parole. Muzzo is responsible for the 2015 crash in Vaughan that devastated the Neville Lake family, killing three young children and their grandfather, nine-year-old Daniel, five-year-old Harry, two-year-old Millie, and 65-year-old Gary Neville died in the collision. The children's 64-year-old grandmother and 91-year-old great-grandmother were also seriously injured. As Marco Muzzo sped through a stop sign in his Jeep Cherokee and smashed into the family's minivan. He was driving home from the airport after celebrating his bachelor party in Miami and was about three times the legal limit for alcohol when he was tested. Muzzo pleaded guilty and in 2016 was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was granted day parole in April of last year. Prior to the parole board's decision on Tuesday to give Muzzo full parole, Libby was joined to discuss the case by lawyer Andrew D. House, former chief of staff to the Minister of Public Safety, along with criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. Ten years in Canada doesn't mean ten years. Nine years doesn't mean nine years. It tends to mean, unless there's some very, very significant malfeasance in the jail, by that I mean fighting in jail, new charges, people tend to get parole at around the one-third market, their earliest eligibility, sometimes a few months before that. So a lot of Canadians would be don't even know that that's the way the system works. Now, morally, 
whether he should get parole or not depends on people's personal morals. But from a parole board standpoint, what the parole board is dealing with in black letter law or policy today is the concern about public safety. Is he a risk to public safety? His notoriety, uh, quite frankly, the input of Miss Neville Lake, the tragic heart-stopping story of Miss Neville Lake, who not only lost her three children, their grandfather, two others terribly injured by Muzzo getting off a private plane, getting into his Range Rover, being so drunk that he urinated himself. By the parole board's own standards, Libby, this man should legally be given full parole today. And in in my view, Libby, as unpopular as it is, he should have been released on full parole a long time ago. He simply, because of his notoriety, and giving some very, very stupid answers. I don't know why he gave them, but he did. At his first day parole hearing years ago, that is the only reason we're having this discussion today, rather than about a year ago. Andrew House, uh, do you agree? Uh, is is uh, Marco Musso actually being uh, treated in a harsher way than someone else doing the same thing would be? So... I mean, these are very difficult decisions that a parole board faces. But one element of this that really bothers me is is his past history. Uh, in criminal law, I believe in second chances. I don't believe in third chances. He had a history of speeding and other driving offenses. And, and then he engaged in this horrific crime of drunk driving that, that took the lives of four people. Um, there is a system-wide value in denouncing this this conduct. And that's why a sentence of 10 years was imposed. Um, I, I think Ari is right that people don't understand the parole system. I, I think that, that there is a repeated sense uh, of disappointment and disillusionment when, when, on the one hand, people hear a sentence handed down and, and it's X number of years, and then they hear the person's out on parole uh, at a significantly less period of time. That, that does shake, I think, people's belief uh, in the administration of justice. And that's a real problem. It's something I'd love to see governments deal with in terms of some form of truth in sentencing. Uh, notoriety, uh, sure, it, it, it plays in. But I have to say, you know, and Ari mentioned this, the, the uh, answers given uh, were really poor at his first hearing. And, and, and the evaluation was that he had sabotaged his own rehabilitation by, and this is a quote, severely underestimating his problems with alcohol. Well, how do you find yourself in a place where you can't judge a level uh, of, of your addictions and their impacts on other people after you've been convicted uh, in the deaths of four people? In other words, my fear is that, that as they say, the past conduct is the best predictor of future conduct, and that this is a guy who maybe can't change his ways. And that's what gives me uh, a great pause uh, about public safety in the future. For people who are concerned about this, be concerned about sentencing, be concerned about parole. But from a parole standpoint, so long as he's never driving again, he is not a risk to public safety. But also, Libby, as I said, in five seconds, this should not just be a story about Marco Muzzo. This should be about the number of Canadians still drinking and driving. Criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind and lawyer Andrew D. House, former chief of staff to the Minister of Public Safety. They were in conversation with Libby on Tuesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. 
Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the fight back knockout call of the week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Clay in Toronto phoned about the decision to give Marco Muzzo full parole. Anybody that climbs behind the wheel and is impaired and kills somebody should be charged with premeditated murder, period. Cut and dried, that's it. No ifs, ands, or buts. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Massimo in Toronto, the owner of La Vecchia Restaurants, who's frustrated by the way COVID lockdowns have been handled. I own two restaurants in the city, one in Young Street and one in Etobicoke. And I wanted to agree with the lady that how difficult it is to reopen and close and reopen and close. A lot of our staff left completely the business. So we don't know who's coming back and who's not. That's one thing. Second thing is, when they start opening last year, when the first uh, lockdown, they announced it a week before the Toronto's opening. We couldn't even make it in time. We had to work four days straight to reopen the business. Day and night to make sure that we have enough staff, that we make our ordering that we do the whole process for the reopening. It's extremely hard and excruciating, the fact of opening and closing. It's not a switch that you can turn on and off anytime you want. They don't give us enough time for the opening. They don't tell us what's the procedures. They, they, they're not clear on any of the procedures that has to be done. And it's extremely excruciating for the business that we, we, we deal with, especially restaurants. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the Best of Fight Back. The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.